This morning we're looking at uh, Luke 18, 9 through 14. Short passage, uh, short parable, filled with gospel meaning for us. So Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let us pray. Our Father, now as we turn our attention to your word, we, we ask you for the help that we need. We depend upon uh, you to open our eyes, uh, to, to grant us understanding uh, of your word, and, and Lord, particularly that you would search our hearts, help us to, 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 to recognize and see uh, the areas of sin, of unbelief, of disobedience that are there. And Father, that we would be able to confess those sins to you and uh, come to you as sinners in need of mercy. So Father, we, we, we cry out to you this morning for that. Meet us now in this passage here in Luke 18. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus Christ has been our teacher, and the section that we have been in for the past several weeks in, in Luke has been a very key section uh, of his teaching. We have been learning uh, from Jesus about the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus has taught us about what it really means for someone to be his disciple, uh, what his disciples should expect from the world as they seek to follow him. Uh, we've heard him even teach us about how we are to view our money um, as one of his disciples. And, and most recently, we have been le uh, learning from him about how to prepare for his second coming, uh, when the world will experience the full revelation of the kingdom of God. So all that teaching has been essential for us to know, to understand, and to obey we must all seek to have our lives formed and shaped by all of the words of Christ. But this passage we have before us this morning, this brief parable about two men praying, may be some of the most essential teaching that Luke provides us from Jesus in this whole gospel. For this teaching is really meant to answer the question, who is really righteous before God? 
Who is really righteous in God's sight? Who will truly be a part of his kingdom? Who are the ones whom God will justify as acceptable? And of course, Jesus reveals in this parable that it's not the ones whom we would expect. Now, what our, what our teacher Jesus reveals to us here in this passage is good news. It is, it is the heart of the gospel that, as, as one pastor put it, uh, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. But our problem is that we can be so blind to this reality of the gospel that Jesus teaches here that we can live our, our whole lives, and, and many have, even within the church, and we could miss it. We could just miss it. We could not, not see it, not understand it. So our, our main theme from this short passage this morning is that we must beware of our tendency to live as if we have no need of Jesus. We must beware of our, our tendency to live as if we have no need of Jesus. As we begin now to focus on the passage, let's remember that Jesus is teaching us here that the first thing he wants us to learn is that our self-righteousness can be quite deceptive. Our self-righteousness can be quite deceptive here in verse 9. So here Luke provides us in this verse with an introduction which very helpfully informs us of the point of the parable. So let's read verse 9 again. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So once, once we get ourselves into the, into the parable, we can easily see just who Jesus was referring to here in verse 9. Uh, it, of course, was those nasty Pharisees, right? Uh, those proud, arrogant, those snobby Pharisees who despised Jesus, who tried to make his life difficult, who looked down on anyone who would follow Jesus. So that's who, the, who this parable is for, right? It's for, for those Pharisees. Well, then once we hear Jesus describe how these Pharisees, or how this Pharisee prayed in the parable, well, again, we can easily think to ourselves how none of us would ever act this way, right? I mean, how full of yourself do you have to be to pray like this guy does? And so it, it, it kind of becomes quite easy for us to, to distance ourselves from the Pharisee here and this type of, of blatant boasting that we see in the parable. Although it might be easy for us to call, uh, it might be easy, easy for us even to call to mind certain individuals that we know who this guy reminds us of, right? Who this Pharisee reminds us of. Maybe even you're thinking of them even now. Uh, one or two people, you know, who you, you uh, assume based on how they've acted, maybe have had similar uh, prayers that they've prayed once or twice before. You know, maybe, maybe that, that guy who'd always talk about other, other churches, other pastors, other teachers, you know, whose understanding of Scripture wasn't as accurate as his was, or, or that gal who was a gifted singer, and whenever she talked with you, she just, she just couldn't help but, but, but name drop the one or two famous people that she had met 
in her travels, or that, or that mom who couldn't help but tell you how, how well her children were doing in school or in their careers on those rare occasions that you weren't able to avoid her. That's who this Pharisee reminds us of. That's who Jesus must be directing this message at. And of course, if that is what is going on in our minds, then what we have just proven, how deceptive our own self-righteousness can be. Recently, I visited places like the hospital, a couple of doctor's offices, and the nursing home. And of course, before I was able to enter those buildings, I had to first answer a handful of questions. Uh, They were all the the same questions at, at, at every place. I'm sure you've probably been asked these questions more times than you can count in the past 20 months. You know, questions like, do you have fever, chills, cough, shortness of breath, or difficulty breathing, muscle or body aches, sore throat, congestion, have you recently lost your sense of taste or smell? Now, why are they asking us such questions? Well, because they are trying to determine if we might have COVID, and one way to determine that is to see if we have any of the symptoms. If you have COVID, those symptoms tend to go along with it. Some of the symptoms uh, give a stronger indication than others of whether or not you have it, particularly the loss of, of taste and smell. And it, it, it seems that that's truly a clear symptom of it. So if you have that symptom, then of course it's likely that maybe you have COVID. Well, here in verse 9, Jesus gives us a clear symptom of self-righteousness. It's a clear symptom of self-righteousness to help us to know whether or not we're dealing with this in our own hearts. Self-righteous people, he says, treat others with contempt. Or they look down on, or they despise others. Now, this, this, this may not be going on out in the open. You, know, you, you may not be openly talking about how you look down on others. It may just be something that's going on in your own heart. The people that that you are treating with contempt may may not even be aware that you are doing it. Often they're, they're not aware. But as Jesus said elsewhere, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you despise others in your heart, it will affect what you say. It will affect how you actually treat them. Self-righteousness will affect how you live and whether or not you're able to love and serve others. So verse 9 says that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, which means what we think about ourselves will have a direct impact on how we think of others or how we treat others. Uh, Consider how often you get upset because someone else uh, isn't moving or working quite fast enough for you. Or consider how disappointed you've been with a family member who hasn't lived up to the standards that you have set for them in your mind. The more impatient we are with other people and the more disappointed we feel regarding our spouses or children directly point to our own problem with self-righteousness. But you might be thinking, Pastor, I cannot be self-righteous for I simply cannot stand self-righteousness when I see it. I mean, whenever I see it in others, I, 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 I abhor it. 
which of course may actually be a confession that you indeed are self-righteous. So self-righteous that you look down on and despise those who are. You see, self-righteousness can be deceptive. We need to, we need to understand this. Self-righteousness comes down to who we are depending upon for our righteousness. Who we are depending upon for our right standing with God. Jesus warns against those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So that immediately implies we ought not to trust in ourselves. We cannot look at ourselves and think we see righteousness in our actions, in our thoughts, in our desires. We may be able to fool ourselves into thinking that we're doing the right things, we're believing the, the, the right things, we're moving in the right direction, but God's word says the heart is deceitful above all things. Jeremiah 17, 9. So therefore we, we need, or what, what we need to know as we, we begin this parable is that it is for us that we must look outside of ourselves for righteousness, not in ourselves. We will be lost if we trust in ourselves. We must instead depend upon something or someone else. Now verses 10 through 13. Those who need him and those who don't. We'll see those who need him and those who don't. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Uh, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So there are two men and two prayers here. Uh, the two men are about as unlike each other as you could get. They are on opposite ends of the social spectrum in the first century. The Pharisee would have been highly respected as someone who was very religious, who consistently sought to do what was right in the eyes of God. When others noticed him in their presence, they would have felt safe with him. He would have been like a pastor or an elder within a church in our day, one who took great care in how they lived their lives. He is the kind of man that you'd want your daughter to end up with. Um, tax collectors, on the other hand, were widely despised as traitors, as thieves, and as oppressors of their own people. They would be the guys that you warned your daughters about if your daughter would uh, ignore your warnings and actually get engaged to one. You, you would seriously then consider refusing to attend the wedding. It would be that bad. So both of these men went up to the temple here in order to pray. It was because... Uh, 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 Let's be reminded now, of course, as they're going up to the temple, why the people of this day would go to the temple to pray. It was because the temple was considered, of course, the place where God dwelled among his people. His presence was there in that place in a special way. Sacrifices were offered there to God because uh, the temple is where God was, uh, where you were. When you were away from Jerusalem, 
as the people of God were, especially during the, the exile in Babylon, they, 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 they both believe here. They would, they, they, would, they, would, they would turn to the temple when they're away from Jerusalem in order to pray because that's where God was. They're, they're speaking to God with their prayers and they're addressing God with their prayers. They're turning towards the temple to pray. So when these guys come to the temple, when these guys pray, they both believe here they are in the presence of God. They have come before God to speak with him. And they both believe they're speaking with God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the one who revealed himself to Moses and Elijah, the one who, who led his people through the Red Sea and the Jordan River on dry ground. This is the holy, holy, holy God they have come to speak with. And the question for both of them, as they come to the temple to pray is, how do I know that God will accept me? On what basis can I approach this holy God? That is a very important question indeed for, for, for you and I as well this morning. On what basis can I approach God and be assured that I'll be accepted by this holy, mighty God? Well, we hear their answer to that question by how they prayed. And as we see, it is as starkly different as their social status was. Notice there in verse 11 through 12, who the Pharisee is depending upon for his acceptance before the holy and righteous God. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. So in, in his prayer, which is uh, just over 30 words, the Pharisee used the pronoun I five different times. Uh, he first declares to God whom he is not like. He's not like other men. He, he, is, he is different from other men. He is set apart from other men, which in, is in itself a claim to holiness. I'm set apart. I'm I'm holy. He's not an extortioner, he says. He's, he's not someone who uses underhanded and illegal ways to get financial gain from others. He's not someone who's unjust, rather. He is just, and he's right in all his ways. He, he obeys the law. He tells God that he is not an adulterer, that, that, that he is faithful to his wife, always has and always will be, and that he certainly is not like the tax collector who he noticed was also there at the time. He was honest. He did things right. He was respected. He then told God what he did, which are both things that go above and beyond what was required in the law. It says he fasted twice a week, which it was only re, 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 required to fast one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement, but he fasts two times a week, and he gives tithes of all that he got, which would not just refer to whatever income he made, but everything he got. Uh, gifts, uh, an inheritance, uh, even the smallest of things, he's, he's tithing. He's not just religious, but he is super religious. So, in his own mind here, on what basis would God accept him? Well, the Pharisee's answer was on the basis of his own righteousness. 
that he already has within himself. The tax collector, though, was a bit different in his answer to that question. Whereas the Pharisee pointed to himself, the tax collector pointed outside himself. When the Pharisee looked within himself, he saw righteousness. When the tax collector looked, looked at himself, he saw guilt. He saw sin. He saw unworthiness. Now both assumed that God saw what they each saw when he looked at them. A good definition of humility is to see yourself rightly, to recognize who you really are, rather than to think of yourself more highly than you ought, to think of yourself as someone who you actually aren't. So one thing we see from the example of these two men praying is that when you compare yourself to other sinners, well, it's not that hard to see yourself as doing pretty well. But when you compare yourself with God, with God's holiness, with God's moral perfection, with his righteousness, well then, you get a far more accurate understanding of your true situation. The tax collector, he has a very brief prayer, seven words in our English translations compared to the Pharisee's 33 words. Like the Pharisee, the tax collector also refers to himself in his prayer, but only with one description. Unlike the Pharisee's seven ways of describing himself, uh, the one description that the tax collector uses is the sinner. The sinner. Now, most English translations follow the, the King James Version and simply translate his description as a sinner. Uh, but in the original Greek, there is a definite article there in front of sinner, to harmartolo, the sinner. He's not saying to God in his prayer, yes, I know, I know I've made some mistakes. I mean, we're all sinners. We're all sinners, and I just happen to be one of them, uh, which is often how we, we talk about our, our own sins to others as well as within our own hearts. It's one way of trying to justify our sins and trust in our own righteousness. You know, sure, I've made, I've made a few mistakes. I'm only human. But at least I'm not like those sinners. When we talk or think that way, we, we are not seeing ourselves accurately. But in, the, in, in this parable, this tax collector does see himself Accurately. You remember, he was in the temple. He believed he was in the very presence of God. And so every action he makes here, along with his prayer, they reveal his humility and his shame for his sin. He stands far off, away from other worshipers, as far away as he could get from God's presence, but still be in the temple. He keeps his head down, he beats his chest, not, not in the proud way, you know, that, that you see football and basketball players do when, when they've just made some successful play, uh, but in a way of mourning, of sorrow over his sin. He, he knows that he, that he has one great need. His, his prayer is for this one great re request. He knows he is in need of God's forgiveness, and so he pleads for God to be merciful to him. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, if Jesus would have ended the parable here 
in verse 13, without any explanation, how do you suppose his disciples would have interpreted the lesson? Imagine if the parable would have ended with verse 13. How would you have taught its lesson in a Sunday school class with nine and ten-year-olds? Well, if it, if it ended there, I think we all would have, would have said something like, you see, children, isn't that sad? You don't want to end up like the sad, pitiful tax collector. I mean, that is what a life of sin will bring you. You will feel shame. You will feel too ashamed even to show your face in church. Wouldn't you rather end up like this Pharisee? I mean, he did all the right things. He wasn't sinning like that tax collector was. He wasn't doing what all the other bad men were doing. He went above and beyond, even what God had commanded. And now he's the one who loves going to church. He's the one who's being looked up to and honored by everyone there. Surely he is the one who is right with God. But of course the parable doesn't end there and the lesson actually isn't what we expect it to be. For, for Jesus says the opposite of what we would think, the opposite of what most of the people who heard him teach this originally would have thought. He says that no matter how much better we act in comparison to others, no matter how pious our actions are in trying to serve and please the Lord, that we cannot make ourselves acceptable in God's sight. We must be righteous before God, but the righteousness that we need cannot come from us. So we come then to verse 14, the conclusion. And there we see that only those who know they need him are right with God. Only those who know they need Jesus are right with God. In verse 14, I tell you, Jesus says, this man, that is the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So here is the Lord Jesus' answer for that big question that his parable is seeking to answer. Who are the ones whom God will accept into his kingdom? Who are the ones whom God will justify? The ones that God will declare righteous, declare guiltless in his sight. And Jesus uh, proclaims here in verse 14, it's not the one who thinks that he is accepted. It's not the one who assures himself that he must be accepted. Remember our first point, self-righteousness can be quite deceptive. No, Jesus declares here rather authoritatively that the man who went home from the temple that very day, justified before God, was the one who knew full well he didn't deserve it. The one who was sure he didn't belong there. The one who looked outside of himself for righteousness. The one who knew as a sinner he was under God's judgment, and so cried out to him for mercy. That is the one who is justified before God. That is the one whom God will accept into his eternal kingdom. That is the one who humbled himself, the one who knew he needed God. For the past uh, couple days, I was uh, in Iowa at my folks' 
uh, place so my boys could uh, help with harvest uh, this year. And last night, as I was loading up my children into our vehicle uh, to uh, ride back home, um, it was a very beautiful night, uh, clear sky, and I couldn't help but notice the almost full moon there in the southern sky. Uh, it, was, it was just just right at sunset as I was doing this, and so the moon was just kind of stunning how it stood out there in the kind of southeastern uh, sky as the sun was going down, as it was not quite uh, dark yet. And uh, as we drove homeward, it didn't take long, of course, for it to get dark, and that moon just got more and more impressive as we followed it uh, all the way back home. Of course, uh, this time of year, in the fall, in our area of the world, the moon is quite popular. Everyone loves to see that full harvest moon this time of year. Uh, but of course, the only reason any of us can ever see that moon is because of the glorious, overpowering brightness of the sun shining on it. And the moon does not contain within itself any power, any light, any ability within itself to shine on the earth. Whenever we see it, we are just seeing the reflection of the sun's glorious light off of it. If the moon wants to be seen, well, it must depend upon the brightness, not of its own, to shine on it. And it's much the same with us. If we are to be accepted in God's kingdom, our only hope is to depend upon a righteousness completely outside of us. As we sang in the hymn, O God, be merciful to me, I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. There's a much older hymn that also expresses what our, uh, what our confession must be before God. It's from the words of Horatius Bonar, Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. So friend, how would you answer that, that old evangelism explosion question, if you were to die today, why should God let you into his heaven? I must tell you, if, if you would begin to answer that question in the first person, if you would start off by saying, well, I, I have done this, or I accepted you know, this, or, or I, I prayed th this prayer, or, or I was baptized, or, well, I, I am a member of this particular church. No, no, no matter what comes after the I in your response from, uh, to that question, as we see from this passage, we are to know that, that we have gone wrong. If that's our initial a a a response, if that's where we're looking, we would be just like the one here who prayed, I am not like other men. I fast, I give tithes. I am the kind of person that, of course, you would want in your kingdom. But rather, according to Jesus here, the right answer to that question of why the Lord would let me into his heaven is because of what he has done. 
It was his life. It was his death. It was his righteousness on which my whole eternity depends. It's not in me. It's not in me. And in the gospel call, friends, God is offering him to you. He's offering Christ's life, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, the righteousness of Christ. So do you need him? Do you know that you need him? As we go to the table this morning, let us realize that God sent his son to us in order for us to be saved, to be made righteous through him, not in me, but only him. I'll have the men come forward this morning who will help to serve the table. And uh, as we approach the table, again, we, we, we are to do so in the same spirit as we see the tax collector approaching God in the temple. In that same spirit, O God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I am unworthy. I don't deserve this. But you are gracious. You are merciful. And you have sent your son to redeem us. I'll read the instructions that, that were given in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread of, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So friends, as we um, approach the table here this morning, let us have God's word leading us. Have, let us have God's word uh, instructing us. We are to examine ourselves, and what we are to examine ourselves for is, are we depending upon our own righteousness, or are we looking to Christ? Are we looking to Christ as our hope, as our salvation, as our righteousness? And if that is where you are, then you are welcome at the table. It's for you. If that's not where you are, if admittedly you, you know you're not following Christ, you don't know him, you are looking to yourself or something else other than Christ for your good standing with God, then the table simply is not for you. And we'd ask you to just pass on the elements, but we would ask you to meditate, think about what you just heard in the message of where our righteousness truly lies, where we are to look. And know that God is merciful. I have the men step forward now as we will pass out the bread. They will um, pass the bread out and we ask that you would just take a, a piece of bread, a cracker there, and hold on to that until all have been served. And we'll partake of the bread together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for this word in Luke 18 this morning that has helped us to, to consider where we stand with you. We thank you so much for sending the Lord Jesus, 
that he, Father, fulfilled all righteousness in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And now all who put their hope in him, who follow him by faith, Lord, that his righteousness have been, has been imputed to us. We thank you, Lord, for this incredible gift. Help us now to give thanks for that together, to rejoice in that together as we partake of the bread. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.